The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for who you are. The God of mercy. For the God who is the one Lord of your church. We praise you for your love, for your gracious gifts, and for the gift of your word. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your truth in our hearts and lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen. There's a memorable scene in Aaron Sorkin's movie, Steve Jobs. It's a movie about... Steve Jobs, of course, who was the co-founder with Steve Wozniak of the world's largest tech company, Apple. And there's a scene in this movie where Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, they're not really good friends at this point. There's contention and division between them, and they find themselves talking before the release of a product. They find themselves talking in the orchestra pit of the San Francisco Opera. And Jobs tells Wozniak about this conductor that he once met, this world-renowned, world-class, incredible conductor. And he tells Wozniak about how he asked this conductor, he said, hey, what is it exactly that you do as a conductor that can't ultimately be done by a metronome? And the conductor said to Jobs, the musicians play their instruments, I play the orchestra. To which Wozniak responds, well, that feels like something that sounds good, but doesn't mean anything. For the last three weeks, we've been talking about unity in the church. And we've been following Paul's words in Ephesians 4, talking about unity as one body in one spirit with one hope. And the fourth place where Paul grounds our unity is in one Lord. Jesus, at the end of Matthew's gospel, says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one Lord of his one church. But as we look at the church and the fallen, sinful, broken state of it, the divided, fractured state of that one body, 
and yet we say Jesus is our one Lord, sometimes we have to wonder, is that something that just sounds good but doesn't really mean anything? How does Jesus' lordship actually work itself out in the church as we are divided? Where does Jesus actually exercise his authority? How and where does Jesus' lordship actually take place and bolster our resolve to be a church here and around the world that's truly one under the one Lord? Well, this morning, I want to take a look and drill down in three specific places where Jesus is Lord. If you're taking notes, I want to look at Jesus as Lord of our fracture, Lord of our scripture, and Lord of our future. So let's jump back into verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus is a member of the Jewish community with these Pharisees. They're part of the same communal tradition. And one of the most important things about God's people, Israel, is that they observe the Sabbath. Once a week they have a day where they rest from their labor. That's what people knew about Israel back in the day. But it appears that there's a division between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath. It appears that a conflict has arisen between his understanding and his practice of the Sabbath versus the Pharisees and what they think is a faithful extension of their community. And in one sense, that's to be expected, right? Communities that exist over long periods of time with a very unique identity, it's natural that it would become very complex to remain that same community, right? It's natural that over the course of time, issues arise that people at the beginning may not have thought of, right? It's natural that over the course of, for instance, the church, 2,000 years, issues have arisen that people at the beginning maybe didn't think of at first. How to faithfully extend the community in light of this question, that question. Right? 2,000 years we've been doing this. Even, even our country. Think about America, right? America's only 250 years old, basically. Right? And there's still divisions and issues that arise in America that challenge and threaten our unity. Right, The church looks at Americans and says, hey, call us when you get to 1500. It's natural that a community that develops over time would encounter questions people hadn't anticipated. Fractures and divisions. Jesus is not surprised by that. Jesus is not surprised by that. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus isn't scared of that, right? Jesus is fearless. He, he takes the conflicts head on. He takes the fractures and the divisions head on because Jesus is Lord of our fracture. Jesus is Lord of the fractures and divisions. He remains in charge. He still has authority, and he's going to raise the issues in order to chart a way through. He's going to raise the issues that might tear, but ultimately bring us back together and sew a new garment. 
All right, we spent four weeks in January in a series called Scattered and Gathered. And Peter Lightheart, in his book on church unity, uses similar language to that. He, he kind of shows throughout the Bible how God is constantly scattering and gathering. He's, he's tearing apart and sewing back together in this new synthesis. And so he writes in his book, he says, God moves the world forward from glory to glory by tearing and reuniting. Each time he tears and reunites, he makes the world better than it was before. Time moves forward by periodic deaths and resurrections. That is the story of the Bible, and it is the continuing story of the church's future. Jesus is Lord of our fracture, and he's not afraid of it because he's going to chart a way through to unity. And we see how he's going to do that in our text. As we move forward, we see how he deals with the fracture. Going back to verse 3, he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus and the Pharisees have a communal disagreement. A fracture has arisen over their beliefs and practices around the Sabbath. And so what does Jesus do? He turns to Scripture. He goes to the Bible. He says, hey, haven't you read 1 Samuel 21? Haven't you noticed that that David and his companions did this with the bread of the presence? He says, haven't you? You've read Numbers 28, right? You know that the priests on the Sabbath break the Sabbath because they're offering sacrifices. They're working. Right? Jesus doesn't just frivolously dismiss the Pharisees with a wave of the hand. And he doesn't try to beat them over the head with the fact that they're trying to live according to Scripture. No, he turns towards Scripture. And so I think Jesus has has modeled for us a way to engage with each other as we have disagreements or as we have disagreements with churches outside. I think he gives us an example that charts a course away between two extremes. Right, so on the one hand, I think we learn from Jesus that the way to heal our fractures is not to simply downplay or degrade the place of the Bible. Right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, Pharisees, come on. I mean, it's not really the word of God. Or, hey, Pharisees, don't you know that this was compiled over long periods of time by other ignorant human beings? No, Jesus he uses the Bible with authority, right? He, he appeals to it as an extension of God's authority, as a foundational norm for his community. So one extreme to guard against is for us to, to downplay and downgrade the Bible, the scripture, as we try to chart a course through our fracture, right? Jesus in Matthew's gospel Remember, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, on the other hand, 
I think as we move through conflict and division and questions, the other extreme I think to guard against is to pretend that when we try to reason from scripture together, that it's always going to be simple. All right, when we come together to try and faithfully chart a way through, to try and faithfully listen to Jesus in scripture, let's not come together and pretend it's always going to be cut and dry right away. Right? Let's not pretend it's always going to be quite so simple. That is a belief that's really taken root in American Christianity for a long, long time, and in that sense, also in our tradition at times. But let's remember that sometimes this is going to be challenging, right? Sometimes it's going to be complicated, right? Ben brought up the Civil War last week. So case in point, the issue of slavery, right? In the 1800s, there were a lot of Christian ministers that felt like the Bible was crystal clear on the issue of slavery. The problem was, A lot of those ministers were on opposite sides of what they thought the Bible was crystal clear on, right? And and that didn't cut neatly always across north and south. In fact, there were southern ministers who saw clearly the sin of slavery, and there were northern ministers like Henry Van Dyke from Brooklyn who said, when the abolitionist tells me that slaveholding is sin, in the simplicity of my faith in the Holy Scriptures, I point him to this sacred record and tell him in all candor, as my text does, that his teaching blasphemes the name of God and his doctrine. Right, so I think we do a disservice to one another when we act as if every question is going to be plain and simple. Right? When we come to reason together from Scripture, we do a disservice because then our young people open up the Bible and a really thorny issue pops up, and if it's not plain and simple, well, maybe they throw up their hands and walk away. Right? Or if it's, if it's just plain and simple, well, then it seems like our opponents are just willfully distorting, right? But we need to acknowledge that we all come to the text as fallen, sinful people, and that it's not always easy, right? Acts 8, Philip and the eunuch, right? The eunuch is reading from Isaiah, and Philip comes up to him and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guides me? Our guide for Scripture the thing that is simple and plain that we can rest upon is that Jesus is Lord of our scripture. The spirit of Jesus Christ is faithfully going to lead us through. The spirit of Jesus Christ is faithfully going to help us read his word. Jesus is our interpretive key, right? And he is the one with the authority to read faithfully. When he brings up David in our text, that's not just an arbitrary Old Testament reference. David, at that point in the story in 1 Samuel 21, has been anointed king, but he hasn't been yet crowned king. So Jesus is drawing a parallel between the inaugurated kingship of David and his own authority. He's saying, I'm the true king and lord of this scripture who can show you how to faithfully read and more importantly, live this text. 
We read through the lens of our one Lord Jesus Christ who is faithful to the word. But it's going to take time. It's going to take time to work through our conflicts, to work through our issues, our divisions, our fractures. And time is precisely the last place to look for the lordship of Jesus. Let's turn to the last couple verses of our text. Jesus says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. When Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's not just saying he has authority over one day a week. We've often made the mistake of thinking that Jesus has authority over us just one day a week. No, the Sabbath is central to Israel's conception of time, to how Israel thinks about time and history. Right? Sabbath is grounded all the way back in creation. The cosmos itself, God creates and then he rests on the seventh day. That's Sabbath. That's what Israel is headed towards, to that perfect eternal future of God's Sabbath rest. Right? So when Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, it's not just about one day. He's Lord of time itself and therefore Jesus is Lord of our future. Jesus is Lord of our future. He's Lord of our fracture. He's Lord of our scripture. And he's leading us into a future that is one. As he and the Father and the Spirit are one. And the key to Jesus' lordship over time? Mercy. That's what he says. He quotes again from scripture, from Hosea 6, verse 6, which translated from the Hebrew says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Love and mercy. That's how Jesus is going to heal our fractures. Love and mercy. That's how Jesus teaches us to read scripture. Love and mercy. That's how he leads us into the future. Love and mercy. And if it's going to take time, we're going to need that virtue that provides faithfulness through time. The virtue of patience. Isn't that precisely what Paul says in Ephesians 4? Gentleness and humility, patience, bearing with one another in love to establish the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now God could unite us tomorrow. God could unite us tomorrow. Jesus could come back tomorrow and we're supposed to live with that urgency. But at the same time, it could take time. It could take the patience of years. It could take patience of decades. It could take patience of millennia. Philip Jenkins has a book called The Next Christendom. And in this book, he talks about this incredible dynamic that's happening with Christianity in the global south. Right, so Latin America, Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, that because of 
demographics and culture and really high birth rates and evidently the movement of the Holy Spirit, Christianity is exploding in the global south. And while the West in some ways secularizes and stagnates a bit, we seem to be clearly handing on the baton of the center of global Christianity, Europe and North America. We're handing that baton on to the global south. And Jenkins talks about these new vibrant churches that are sprouting up around the world in these areas. Churches that interact in fantastic ways with their culture. Churches that produce these interesting permutations of gospel faithfulness. Churches that seem to be quite charismatic. Churches that take deep root amongst the poor. And he wonders what that future might look like. And then at the end of the first chapter, he asks us, to do a thought experiment. He says, imagine that we are Christians in Syria in 700 AD. We're Syrian Christians, it's 700 AD, and at that moment in time, Syria is still a numerical and cultural center for Christianity. And he says, imagine that a traveler comes to our congregation and they come with wild stories about these fantastic churches and Christians that are taking root in these far-off, strange places called Europe. That these travelers have seen these vibrant new churches that are sprouting up and growing in these far-off barbarian peoples from England and Germany. Right? And we hear tales of these churches taking root. But what we really want to know is the really important question is where do these new Christians and churches come down on the issues of the day? Like the really hot button issues that are dividing us. Like where do these strange barbarian Germans and English, where do they come down on the monothelite controversy? Right, the issue of does Jesus have one or two wills? Right, where do these barbarian churches, where do they come down on the iconoclasm controversy? How do they deal with that? Where are they deciding? And the traveler kind of pauses and says, you know, those those issues don't resonate and register in exactly the same way there. These these churches have, have different concerns, slightly different emphases. And Jenkins says, as... Syrian Christians would go on debating these issues to exhaustion. Meanwhile, these churches in Europe would begin to sprout and flourish in ways that no one could have conceived. They begin to sprout and flourish and flower so magnificently beyond what anyone could have possibly hoped or imagined. Jesus is the one Lord of his church. And that doesn't just sound good, that means something. That means that whatever thorny or contentious issues we face, Jesus is Lord over them. And we may not be able to see exactly what a faithful gospel synthesis looks like that far down the road, that far across the world, but we know that Jesus is Lord over it. 
We know that he will faithfully guide his church. We may not know exactly what the church looks like in Kigali, Tehran, or Singapore in the year of our Lord 3000, but we do know it will still be the year of our Lord. We do know that Jesus will faithfully guide us into his future of oneness. Rowan Williams says, we do not yet know what will be drawn out of us by the pressure of Christ's reality, what the full shape of a future orthodoxy might be. We don't know exactly what Jesus is going to draw out of us. We don't know exactly how he'll chart a course, but we know the one Lord is powerful to chart a course through death to resurrection, through division to reuniting, through tearing to sewing back together. Because Jesus is Lord of our fracture, he's Lord of our scripture, and he's Lord of our future. And that means that he's Lord over you. He's Lord over me. He's Lord over us. He's Lord over the separation in your family. He's Lord over the fissure in your marriage. He's Lord over the fracture in your friendships. He's Lord over the sin you can't shake. He's Lord over all of it. Your anxiety, depression, loneliness, and despair. He's Lord over that. And the way Jesus is going to exercise that lordship in your life, in the life of the church and the world, is mercy. Love and mercy. And it's going to take patience. But the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace will faithfully guide us through as we live in to the oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we experience the Lordship of Jesus, our one Lord of heaven and earth, who will faithfully guide us to his perfect Sabbath rest. Let's stand and praise the Lord of heaven and earth.